welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm still full from all the fras I ate this morning. All the fras. Yeah, fras is like a thick pancake. Ooh. Yeah, they're delicious. That does sound good. I bet you would want them with blueberries in it. Probably. I do love blueberry pancakes. That would be good. Yeah. I had a cinnamon roll for breakfast this morning, though, so that's not too bad either. You know, that's on point with your brand. It is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Any of you guys didn't know, Courtney has a bit of a sweet tooth in the morning. <laughs> I love sweet breakfast. Um, I'm more of a savory, but mm. I do enjoy pancakes with my savory stuff, so both. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, we are back. We are um, Ed Kemper Part 2. We are. And I believe it's my question. It is. It's question time from Trisha. Well, you know, uh, it was Thanksgiving yesterday, and a lot of times, in my family anyways, um, we play games, and it made me think, Courtney, what is your favorite board, card, whatever game that you like to play with a group of people? That is a really great question. I Um, try. Yeah. I think I would say... I'm kind of old school. I really like playing Scrabble. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's like a thinking game. It is. Yeah, and it's like kind of strategy involved. Yes. I think bit. that's why I like it. Hmm. Well, I'm not very good at Scrabble, although I do play the Wordle. And <laughs> I got it after two tries, the New York Times Wordle, this week. Two times, two tries. So I was really proud of myself, and I had to, like, screenshot it and send it to Chris. Ooh, that's exciting. Because I'm not very good at those games. But my favorite game is Taboo. Oh, that's a good game. I love Taboo, and especially if you, you know, share a brain with your partner. Ah. Um, And I like to sing a lot of the Taboo um, clues. Like, put them in a song. Like, a a well-known song. So, like. You, that's kind of like, you know, if I also, if the word is in the song, then I can like sing the song and not say the word. And then people tend to know what it is as long as they know my music. Oh, that's a very good strategy. Just to, you know, not give away any <clears throat> ways to beat me, but that's sort of the, that's sort of my go-to method in Taboo. Very smart. Thank you. Um, so yeah, that was my question. Was the question. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I, as holidays come up, there's going to be more and more family gatherings at least for me I have a huge family um it's hard to fit everyone in in fact but I give it a shot we play a lot of games yeah my family was never a big like game playing family at gatherings so you know it kind of depends on how much um who it is and how much alcohol has been drunk Mm. in my in my group that makes sense yeah and I'm not always a joiner sometimes I'm just like yeah I'd rather watch you know Christmas vacation or whatever on TV instead of play games, but when I do play, it gets mm-hmm. a little involved. I can understand that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we're back to part two, and um, do you want to give us just a little recap on part one? Sure. So last time, um, we learned that Ed Kemper was born, and he grew up in a kind of tumultuous family situation. His mom and dad fought a lot. Then they divorced, and then mom was very cruel and abusive and may have had a personality disorder as well as being an alcoholic. And at some point, you know, she shipped little Ed off to, well, she didn't. He left to go stay with his dad. 
Um, and then dad shipped him off to grandparents and then kind of just abandoned him there mm-hmm. um, because his parents were a little bit scared of the amount of trouble he was getting in and he was harming cats and mm-hmm. other animals. And so they thought he would be safe out on the farm with grandma and grandpa. Um, unfortunately, Ed got into some trouble out there too. And where we left off was with 15-year-old Ed having just murdered his grandparents, Mm -hmm. shooting his grandmother while she was in the kitchen, and then shooting his grandfather when he came home from running errands out in the yard. Yes. So now Ed is at home with both of his grandparents' corpses, and he's unsure what his next move should be. He hid the bodies from the neighbors inside the house in case they saw, I mean, uh, but he did say if a neighbor had happened upon him at the time, he would, quote, Anybody that came up there and gave me a funny look or a fish eye or a quizzical look, I would have blown their brains out. If I had been in a crowded city, I would have been a mass murderer at age 15. My back hit the wall and I came out screaming and kicking and shooting. I was raging inside. But after this, you know, feeling subsided and he calmed down a bit, he wasn't sure what to do. And the only thing that he could think to do was to call his mom. I guess that instinct just doesn't go away. (laughs) Clarnell dispatched the police and told Ed to stay put. Ed also called the police himself just to be double sure that they would come. Clarnell then, you know, had to call Ed Sr. and to rub it in his face. She told him, I told you so, about leaving Ed up there with his parents. You know, she prophesied that he might do something to them, and she was right. Police soon arrived, and Ed had calmed himself down. When they asked him why he had done it, he replied, quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma. He contemplated killing himself, but said he didn't want to leave a mess for the police to clean up. Courtney, do you think Ed's reasoning for not killing himself makes sense, or do you think he's just making excuses for living? I mean, it would certainly seem unlikely that a person who has just murdered two people would be worried about leaving a mess, Um, but only Ed can really know what he was thinking, Um, and sometimes in the heat of the moment, we're not always thinking rationally. So it could have been his, his thought. Um, you know, either way though, he didn't attempt suicide ultimately because he didn't want to die. Yeah. He, I guess he sort of tried to clean up the mess. He could clean up his grandpa by pulling him inside, but he couldn't clean up the grandma mess. It was just too much. Right. Gore everywhere. Well, Ed was put into California's Youth Authority Juvenile Court System at this time. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which we have learned by now is kind of a catch-all diagnosis back then. After a while there, he was transferred to Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Ed seemed to thrive here. The book explains it like this, quote, He was a psychopathic killer in the world of psychology, psychiatry, peopled by various practitioners of mental gymnastics and endless wordplay that delved deep within the morass of his damaged mind and soul. It was a sociopath's version of heaven. Courtney, do you agree with the author that Ed was a psychopath at the age of 15? How about the schizophrenic diagnosis? And is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, we have seen um, in previous episodes that the go-to diagnosis back in the 1950s was schizophrenia, you know, because only, quote, a crazy person, you know, could commit these kinds of crimes. Uh, But there's no evidence that Ed was experiencing hallucinations or delusions, which are a requirement of that diagnosis. Uh, And, you know, in modern day, most psychiatrists are wary of giving a personality disorder diagnosis to a teenager, 
But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have met all the criteria for antisocial personality disorder, a.k.a. being a psychopath, um, aside from that age requirement. So there were 1,660 inmates at this facility, and it was an adult facility, and the average inmate age was 36. There were several murderers in the facility, and half of the population were sex offenders. Typically, a young boy of 15 would not be sent to such a place. The judge who sentenced him had it out for Ed. Uh, based on the heinousness of his crimes, and he figured that, you know, with his height, he might not be tortured and raped too much. But ultimately, the judge was pissed off at what Ed did and stuck him there kind of as like a fuck you. Um, Courtney, I don't personally think the judge did the right thing here. This was probably the exact wrong environment for a teenage Ed. He was only going to learn even more depraved things from other adults, you know, violent inmates. What are your thoughts, though? I agree that being housed with adults at age 15 is not a good decision. You know, the teenage brain is still developing in a lot of ways, and the environment around a person plays a large part in how it grows. You know, this age is when a person is really figuring out who they are, what values they have, how they relate to others, their sexuality, and just to name a few. Um, and so 15-year-old Ed was learning all of these things about how to be a person in the world from mentally ill criminals. And now... You know, I don't know this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if there also just wasn't a juvenile facility appropriate for Ed at that time. You know, either there was no juvenile mental health facility that was secured um, the way that criminal facilities are, um, and or there was no juvenile corrections facilities equipped to manage somebody of his size or with mental health problems. Well, luckily for Ed, his size did prevent him from being raped or beaten by other inmates. He did get treatment and mental health attention, which was appreciated by the young Ed. They tasted, they tested his IQ twice. The first time he got a score of 136, and the second test showed him at 145. So the average IQ is what, about 100? Yes. So he's pretty darn high up there. Ed was surprised. He had been told that he was stupid by his peers, probably because of his size. I imagine because of his size, people thought that he that he was older than he was and therefore judged him to be unintelligent based on, you know, the perceived age versus his real age. Other testing by the mental health staff gave him new diagnoses. There was a lot of them. Quote, personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type, negativistic personality disorder, borderline personality, histrionic personality, paranoid, dependent, antisocial, avoidant personality. And it kept going. Um, these were based on his, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delus delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. Courtney? So basically, um, that description just says that Ed has all the personality disorders at the same time, but was not psychotic. Um, you know, at the time that Ed was in this institution, um, the clinicians would still have been using the very first edition of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, and that has a very different framework and classification system when it comes to personality disorders than the current fifth edition has. Um, so just because he carried those labels back then doesn't necessarily mean he would carry them now. Mm -hmm. Um the one thing that hasn't really changed, though, is the IQ testing. Um, and so I think it's safe to say that whatever else was going on in Ed's mind, he was very intelligent. You know, if we take the higher of his two scores, the 145, 
that would mean that Ed scored higher than 99% of the rest of the population. He could be in Mensa. Yes. That's what it's called? He would be in Mensa. Yep. While all of this testing on Ed was occurring, he was soaking up all the information, just like the evil genius sponge that he was. He was learning how to give them what they want. So that was a Jim Jeffries reference, um, and never mind. He was convincing his doctors that he was recovering and that he was recovering quickly. He was on his way out of there. Courtney, can you think of another serial killer we've studied who was able to do something like this? He was in a state hospital for multiple murder uh, convictions, and he was given all sorts of diagnoses to explain his behavior. He was then able to manipulate his providers into thinking he was recovering based on knowing what they wanted to hear. Sounds to me like our old pal, Jerry Brudos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember, like, thinking back the ones that had been previously in prison for something like murder. The only one I could think mm. of was, like, Harvey Kerrigan, and he only got out on a technicality. Right. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember if Jerry Brudos was in there for murder. He was definitely in there for, like, assault and sexual yeah, assault. Yeah, yeah. As a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it was murder, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Ed said this about his time in the state hospital. Quote, Basically, I was born there, you know. I have a lot of fond memories of that place, and I don't know anybody else who has. It's probably true with most <laughs> with most people in prison, so you know, that's, that's something. His stay at As- uh, Tescadero got him out of his shell. He was becoming a charming and pleasant young man. He was happy to do any testing or interviews for anyone who asked. He was so fascinated by all the work that the mental health staff was doing that he really you know, started to study it. He was actually assigned to the psychiatric laboratory and assisted the professionals in administering tests to other patients you know, slash inmates. Quote, I helped to develop some new tests and see new scales on MMPI. Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. I helped to develop a new scale on that, the Overt Hostility Scale. How's that for an ironic note? There we go. It was an ironic note that I helped to develop that scale. Courtney, do you have any information on the test that he's speaking of? Also, how do you feel about him helping develop these tools? Yeah, so I am familiar with the MMPI, or the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, Um, So it was originally developed back in the 1940s by researchers Hathaway and McKinley and was used to measure different personality traits that uh, may impact things like diagnosis, treatment planning, and like forensic decisions, so like among criminals. And so at the time, it was really revolutionary in that it was developed based on actual like behaviors and observations in people of different populations as opposed to other assessments at the time that were based on sort of specific theoretical orientations. Um, And so the third edition of the MMPI, which was released in 2020, is still being used by psychologists today for, you know, measuring personality traits. Now, back when Ed was supposedly involved in it, the researchers were likely working on the first revisions that would eventually become the second edition. Um, And it's not surprising that the population at the state hospital was being used for this purpose, as they would be a decent sample of the criminal and mentally ill population. That being said, it does raise some real ethical questions for me about having a subject, particularly a minor, engaging in the creation and administration side of the test. Yeah, it's a a little weird, but, you know. John Douglas, whom we've spoken of often, would later interview Ed extensively regarding this time in Ed's life. 
Douglas said that Ed used his genius to memorize 28 responses to assessments that aided in his con to get him out. During his time here, he was also exposed to stories from other inmates who would describe and glorify the raping and murdering um, of their past histories, and Ed would eat these stories up. Quote, the stories added rocket fuel to Ed's own perverse fantasies. The teen not only studied what his new teachers had done, he paid particular attention to what they had done wrong. So this is the main reason, personally, I think it was inappropriate for Ed to be sent to this adult facility, but... That's just me. Ed also learned that unless he professed to have found God and religion, he had little hope for parole. Quote, there are no atheists in prison because God-haters don't get paroled. So Ed started to read and analyze the Bible and converse with others about the gospel he was studying. All of his work eventually paid off. After five years in this mental hospital for the criminally insane, Ed finished out his term at the California Youth Authority. So he was transferred back there. Ed was now six foot nine and 275 pounds. He was a model inmate and was left alone due to his size. This is something he said, quote, when I walk into a room, everyone immediately looks up at me because I'm the tallest person they've ever seen. The conversations stop. All eyes turn on me. And the irony of the thing is that the shortest kid is infuriated because he has always dreamed of being the center of attention. I want to blend into the crowd. At school, I was constantly harassed by smaller kids. So Ed was 21 years old when he was deemed fully rehabilitated and he was released. Courtney? So what you described as, you know, Ed memorizing the sort of correct answers to convince his doctors that he was rehabilitated is exactly why giving the having the role of giving and scoring assessments of other inmates was so inappropriate. You know, for any for age. anybody. Yeah. Yes. You know, many criminals are already good at manipulating and telling people what they want to hear. So add in Ed's intelligence and his charm, and I'm surprised that his doctors weren't more wary of this miraculous recovery. Ed earned his GED while he was incarcerated, but when he was released, he was now in a place that was much different than when he had gone in. There was a big movement going on in the youth of America, and it was now 1969. That was like the summer of love, right? Kind of like the hippies were born. Yep. Yeah. And he was kind of at a loss. He reflected on a date he went on shortly after he got out, and he took her to a John Wayne movie and then to a Denny's. And he said it was a disaster um, because that's not really what the dates were like anymore. But he had never been on a date. Remember, he went in when he was 15 years old. He had been incarcerated, um, you know, for most of his life where he would be taking girls on dates. He also went against the advice of the doctors that he had been working with, and he returned to his mother's house to live. Some of his doctors thought perhaps Ed had some sort of trauma bond with his mom, like Stockholm Syndrome, and that's why he chose to return home. Courtney, what do you think? Well, I do think it's very possible that Ed and his mother had an unhealthy dynamic. Um, I don't know that I would call it Stockholm Syndrome, you know, in Stockholm Syndrome, a victim develops a sort of fondness for and reliance on their abuser, usually someone who's been holding them hostage for some time. Now, with Ed and his mother, I would probably consider their dynamic closer to being that of an enmeshed parent-child relationship. Um, so in an enmeshed family, there are no boundaries between the family members. So instead of the strong bonds that signal a well-functioning family unit, Family members are fused together through unhealthy emotions. And so this is often a result of trauma, um, including when a parent is having a mental illness or an addiction. 
Um, and Clarnell, like we talked about in part one, likely had borderline personality disorder and was an alcoholic. So in this type of relationship, children often have difficulty with um, creating individual personalities and self-esteem development and that sort of separation that you expect um, between child and parent as they get older is kind of stunted. I'm flashing to Eric Napolitano and his mother. Yes. I mean, different because she was a narcissist, but that weird enmeshment. Right, yeah, and often enmeshment and codependency, which is, I think, what we talked about more mm-hmm. with, with him, they do go together. Okay. Well, Clarnell worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, also called Stevenson College. Per Ed, Clarnell was great at work, but at home she was a, quote, pure bitch. Clarnell was still a drinker and still was awful to Ed. She would give him shit for all his mediocreness, the same way she did with her husband's. She did, by the way, marry and divorce a third time while Ed was incarcerated. I guess Ed did try moving out a couple times, but he always ended right back at Clarnell's. Ed reached out to his father, who was not happy to hear from him. His wife, his new wife, was terrified with Ed at this point, and I, you know, I can't really blame her. He did meet his dad at a restaurant, and it sounds like it was a good visit. Ed Sr. told Ed that he forgave him for killing his parents, but this was the last time the two would ever see each other again. Um, Ed said that he really screwed up by killing his grandparents. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ed did sign up for a new uh, for a few college courses, mostly in criminal justice classes, because of course you know he wanted to be a cop. Unfortunately, he was too tall to be a cop, so that was out of the picture for him. I honestly don't know if they would have taken him with his background, anyways. I don't know either. I don't know if his but... records were sealed or how that worked. No. He didn't really pursue his collegiate education after that. At this time, colleges were now co-educational, meaning that women were allowed to go to college with men. To fit in, Ed bought himself a motorcycle, but he wrecked it more than once and on one occasion actually broke his arm. I have to imagine that being as big as he would was would make it tough to ride a motorcycle, but I, I don't know because I've only ridden on the back of one once because they're terrifying. So he got $15,000 from that um, motorcycle accident, though, and bought a giant car 18-foot-long Ford Galaxy 500 that he tried to turn into a police cruiser. Like, he put on all these antennas and radios and stuff, but eventually took the antennas off because it was just too much of an obvious-looking car. But now, Ed had something to offer women. A ride. Mm. Courtney, anything you'd like to weigh in on the information I just imparted? I think what strikes me about this point in Ed's development and behavior is that he, now in his early 20s, is doing many of the things that would be expected of a person in their teen years. You know, he missed out on so many things while he was locked up that he is just now having to catch up on all the things like separating from his parents, learning how to fit in, dating, going to school, etc. All those teenage things. Yeah, he was put into an adult-like setting when he should have been in a teenage setting, and now he's in an adult setting, and he's feeling like a teenager. Right, yeah, because yeah. he just never got a chance to practice those skills. Mm-hmm. At this time, hitchhiking was all the rage. Women hitchhiked all the time, especially on the college campuses, and there were several campuses near each other in this part of California. He'd look for girls to give rides, and he'd go down as, or sorry, as far north as Oregon and then all the way down to Santa Barbara. He would learn about the girls, study them, try to figure them out during these rides. They made him aware that his haircut he sported was not cool, and so he grew it out. He grew it out and made it what he called fluffy. 
He increased the size of his mustache, grew out his sideburns, you know, tried to dress more with the now, tried to fit in. His violent fantasies were growing daily at this time. Quote, when someone puts their hand on my car door handle, they were giving me their life. Ed began to put kill kits in his giant boat of a car. There would be like swords, knives, ropes, handcuffs, or sorry, handcuffs, all sorts of things. He also figured out how he could jam his door shut from the inside by dropping a chapstick into the handle area, much like Ted Bundy did. Mm-hmm. Ed did his research for about a year. He thinks he gave at least 150 free rides during that time. He would do experiments, take weird routes to destinations, use side roads, or go off-road just to see how the co-eds would react, the women would react. Ed ref- would refer to his later victims as zappies. And when he was ready to play out his fantasy, it was 1972. He felt that he had done enough recon by May, and he was confident that he could now actually kill a victim. Quote, it's a moment when everything falls into place, when the circumstances are ideal, no one around. And of course, she would be someone I didn't know at all. It was one of my rules of conduct from which I didn't deviate. I had also decided never to hunt around Santa Cruz because I lived there, especially with my criminal record. I could be considered a potential suspect. So, Corny, it sounds like Ed learned quite a bit when he was in lockup, and he used his big brain to do a year's worth of research before making his decision. Any insights or diagnosis? Ed is showing us here that he has certainly matured as a killer from that impulsive 15-year-old kid who shot his grandparents. You know, he learned both from his own mistakes and the mistakes of others that were shared with him in the state hospital. And because of this and his understanding of, you know, criminology from his college courses and his intelligence, he has become this patient, thoughtful, and methodical psychopath. Yeah, he's not um, acting on these impulses the way – I mean, in, I mean, it, his, his impulse is there to kill, but he's not motivated by – like he, he thought out for a year how to do this. He was very patient, so it's different than a lot of the other killers we've seen. Right, and he plans it. He's thought about the details. Mm-hmm. Um, he's able to suppress that urge mm-hmm. enough to make sure right. that he – you know, sort of does it right. Does it right. It's the right victim. Doesn't get caught. Right. When Ed made up his mind to kill, he started the ritual with his outfit. He would wear a brown shirt with a fringed leather jacket and dark jeans, you know, just in case there was any blood that he needed to hide. He started with the Berkeley campus, which was 75 miles away from his home. Ed was attracted to pretty girls. I suppose that's not that weird, but that was going to be his victim profile. Pretty girls. That day, May 2nd, 1972, he offered a ride to a pair of roommates who were hitchhiking. I don't know why he started with two women, but there you have it. Quote, it was the first time I went looking for someone to kill, and it's two people, not one, and they're dead. Very naive, too. Painfully naive in that they thought they were streetwise. So they were 18-year-old Marianne Pierce and 18-year-old Anita Luchessa, and they were picked up by Ed. They were both tiny women standing only five foot one and about 100 pounds. Anita sat up front and Marianne in the back. Ed saw that they were, you know, communicating with each other through the rearview mirror with their eyes. And it didn't take long before, you know, they really started to feel uneasy in Ed's car. So he must not have practiced giving off no creepy vibes (laughs) because it wasn't working. I guess Ed and Marianne were arguing for about 20 minutes and Ed convinced them that he was acting weird because he was suicidal. 
He was doing what he could not to let them suspect that they were in any danger from him. He eventually pulled over on the road, on the side road that he knew about from one of his jobs with the highway department. It was like a secluded road. He then pulled out his pistol and cuffed Marianne to a seatbelt and pulled Anita out of the front seat. He put Anita in the trunk, then went back to Marianne. He manipulated the handcuffs so that both her hands were now behind her back. While doing this, he accidentally brushed her breast, and he got really embarrassed and apologized profusely. He then put a plastic bag over her head, and she started to freak out. She fought back hard, and she was about a third of his body weight, and she was handcuffed, but she fought. She chewed through the bag that was over her head while he was stabbing her. Quote, I stabbed her all over her back. She turned around, and I stabbed her on the side and the stomach once. As she turned around, I could have stabbed her through the heart, but her breasts were there. Her breasts actually deflected me. I couldn't see myself stabbing a young woman in her breasts. That's embarrassing. Ed was confused on why she was not dead. He stabbed her multiple times, and she was still fighting. Then he slit her throat, and that did it. Courtney, all of this is happening while Anita is in the trunk. I can't even imagine what that poor girl was thinking. I think the anxiety and and adrenaline would give personally myself a heart attack. Anything you want to say about this first kill? How about that he could not stab her breast and that he got all embarrassed when he brushed one? Well, Anita was currently, um, or excuse me, certainly had a strong will to survive. Um, But I imagine it must have been terrifying to be locked in the trunk and, and hearing your friend screaming like that. As for Ed, I think he experienced what it, you know, is going to be like when you can kind of plan as much as possible in your mind, but then there's always going to be that human factor that requires a change in the plan. Um, But he did seem much better at adapting in the moment than some of our other killers that we've talked about when things didn't go exactly according to plan. Um, And as for his embarrassment about touching or stabbing Marion's breast... I think this speaks to his sexual naivete and just inexperience with girls. Were you thinking about BTK? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Ed said this, quote, I had just gone through a horrible experience with her roommate, stabbing her. I was in shock because of that. I'm walking back bewildered and I got to kill her. He's talking about Anita in the trunk. I can't let her go. And I think he kind of did want to let her go, but he was so afraid that, you know, As he says, she's going to tell on me. Everyone's going to get me. I knew I had to do it to the other girl right then because she had heard all the struggle and she must have known something very serious was going on. I pulled my hands down kind of unconsciously and she noticed how bloody they were. And she panicked. Her lip was really quivering and she was really scared. I was scared. So he had opened the trunk and this is what he observed with her. Ed didn't want a repeat performance of what had happened with Marianne, so he used his giant knife, his buffalo skinner knife, and stabbed her. He actually cut his own hand with it, but didn't notice until much later. Anita had somehow fought back enough to knock Ed's watch um, off of him, and that was, like, soaked in her blood, probably Marianne's blood as well. He stabbed her three times, and she was still fighting back, screaming so loudly that Ed was worried someone may hear it. Per Ed, she was fighting more successfully than Marianne had, but there was only so many stab wounds someone can take before they start to die. And Ed was fascinated as he watched her die. After she was still, he took Marianne's body and put it in the trunk with Anita's body. He was on his way out, um, but Courtney, he did not have a smooth ride home. He was pulled over. Pulled over for a busted taillight, a taillight that most likely Anita had kicked out you know, during her valiant struggle to live. Ed had two bodies in the trunk. 
His hand was cut, and he was covered in blood. But wouldn't you know it, he talked his way out of any wrongdoing, used his newly acquired charm, and the cop let him go with a warning. You know, one thing that we just see again and again with these serial killers is that they have some kind of extraordinary luck when it comes to police interactions. Mm -hmm. And I do think that these, you know, lucky encounters work to increase their confidence and just embolden them to keep going. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Cops from the 70s really needed to step up their game. (laughs) Well, who knows how many of these, like, things happen now. We just don't know about it. It's true. Like. (laughs) I don't know. But that is where I'm going to stop for today. His first pair of, well, I mean, it was one one outing, but two women that he did successfully kill, albeit not as smooth as he thought it would be. Right. But, you know, what we know about Ed is that he will use this knowledge and things will go much smoother in the future, I'm sure, for him. Yes. He is a person who learns from his mistakes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, anything you want to say? I'm, we're, we're talking straight up antisocial now. Yes. Antisocial um, personality disorder. Yeah. Are you thinking at. psychopathic, sociopathic, sadistic? We're not sure yet. Um, I think we're not sure yet. I mean, he's definitely in like the psychopath, sociopath mm-hmm. area. Okay. Um, as of yet, we haven't seen any of that like sexual sadism pop mm-hmm. up. Yeah. But who knows what might happen in the next episode. Right. Uh, thus far, he's not torturing people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, okay. So. Anything else you want to say? Um, just that if you like our episode, you should check us out on social media. And, Indeed. you know, like, comment. Subscribe. Subscribe. Follow. Tell your friends. All of those things. And if you want to send us a comment more privately or have ideas or anything you want to say, feel free to email us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our Instagram, where we have officially hit 600 followers. Woo. Hooray! Um, at addicted to M Podcast, Or you can find us on kind of all the other platforms. Um, so YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Did you notice on our TikTok our video on psychopathy got like a thousand views. No, I had not seen yeah. that. I, I don't know if it was hashtag psychopathy mm-hmm. that did it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So woohoo! You guys should check it out. It's and just they're just little quick ones. Yeah. Then tell your friends to check them out. Yeah. It's and then tell your friends to tell their friends. Exactly. We're not begging for followers now. No, we're just we want people to be informed. Yes, we want to spread the message. <laughs> All right, everyone, stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.